0: This morning, we are bringing our current sermon series that we've been in for the last number of weeks to a conclusion. Uh, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, looking at su- uh, a handful of the 30-plus times that Luke tells us that either the crowds or individuals, in some form or fashion, pressed in to Jesus, uh, to see him, to hear him, to have some sort of contact with him. And our final passage that we're going to look at together is the story uh, you may have you may have remembered this story from Sunday school class, the story of the Wee little man Zacchaeus. You can find his story there at the beginning of chapter nineteen. If you grabbed one of the guest Bibles that's uh, page eight forty three Now, last week, we took a few moments to talk about uh, the structure of Luke and um, how Luke is similar to uh, say the the Gospel of Mark, which he Largely bases his outline on, but you also remember around verse nine or chapter nine or so, uh, Luke kind of deviates and does his own thing for a little while before reconnecting with Mark uh, when Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem, um, and so in that sort of meantime, those past, those, those chapters that we. We skipped over, and I was, uh, I was confronted by uh, someone last week that said, you know, I've been trying to follow along with you uh, at home in my quiet times. I've been reading through Luke, um, and here I thought you were going to be, you know, in the, these teaching chapters, and then I just jumped right past them and went straight uh, to Jericho there in chapter 18. So if you were trying to do that, I apologize. Uh, this wasn't meant to be an exhaustive study of the gospel as a whole. We were just looking at little vignettes uh, throughout the gospel. So we did skip that, that teaching section, but But through those teaching sections, or all those passages there in that chunk of the gospel, you remember Jesus has set his eyes where? He has set his eyes on Jerusalem. He's making his way there, and as he's going there, we get these these parables and these interactions that he has with with the various uh, groups that he encounters along the way. And as he journeys, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the sharper his rebuke and criticism becomes of the religious establishment. As he, sort of like an arrow, you know, goes right to the bullseye of Israel. Right to the heart of this nation. The, the epicenter of their religious and cultural life. The closer he gets there, the more hostile he becomes to those who are not there to welcome him. That the, the, his teaching gets gets sharp. It gets hard. It's beca- it becomes more direct in his uh, confrontation, primarily with the Pharisees, those villains of the gospel from the very beginning all along. The, the Pharisees have been there just sort of haunting his steps and sort of like in his shadow all the time. Every time the crowds assemble, there's, there's the Pharisees. They can be found there, and they have no interest in Jesus except to test him and to lay traps for him and even threaten him. They're and that's because Jesus has come to do something in the heart. And the Pharisees' only concern was with the things on the surface, the, the external things, the, the ceremonial things. And so they, they're at, at odds with one another. But, you know, their concern is with the external and the ceremonial, and it is also, maybe you didn't know this, the Pharisees' concern is with money. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? We don't think of the Pharisees as being people who, who were focused on money. We, they seem you know, just really zealous and, and devoted to their sort of rigid understanding of the law and, and, and how one is made right with God and, and what it means to be a religious, true Israelite. And, and while Jesus is is teaching in these chapters about what it means to follow him and how to follow him means you put him before everything else and become completely dependent on him like a child, Luke tells us right in the middle of that section in chapter 16 verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Isn't that interesting? I always uh, find myself just sort of Taken aback by that, I don't know why, I just never associate them as being preoccupied with with that type of thing. And and maybe that begins to explain the real reason why, every time Jesus is seen with the tax collectors, who are the ones complaining about it? (laughs) Well, everyone really, but especially the Pharisees. And this sets the stage for a really interesting parable in chapter 18, which concludes the teaching section. So it's all, Luke has designed his gospel in such a way as to make some points. And the very last parable in this teaching section is a really interesting parable called, you guessed it, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Jesus' own teaching, he, he brings these two groups together to make a point that the kingdom of God Is not for the self reliant and proud like the Pharisees, but for the truly humble and contrite. And in that parable, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, but the tax collector, is the prime example of what God desires to see in the human heart. In our passage, where we're going to conclude this this sermon series this morning, the beginning of chapter 10. Is a concrete example of this parable lived out in real life. So let's look together at the first 10 verses here of Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, come, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. Now, as I mentioned last week, when we were talking about the, the blind man on the outskirts of Jericho, um, Luke presents that man and now Zacchaeus as a pair of outcasts in the final town before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And on the surface, these two guys could not be any more different than, than from one another than they are. So you have one who's outside of Jericho and one who can be found Inside Jericho as Jesus is passing through, you have one who was a poor beggar. You have one who is an extremely wealthy chief tax collector, not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector in the whole region. Could not be more different than the rich or the poor beggar on the outskirts of town. One calls out to Jesus before being brought to him, the other runs ahead before Jesus gets to him. One causes the crowds to give praise to God. The other causes the crowds to grumble and complain. But it's not their differences that are significant in the story, at least not as I read it. It's not their their differences. It's their similarities. Both of them have a physical impairment that prevent them from seeing Jesus, don't they? One is blind. The other is short. (laughs) Both desire some form of engagement with Jesus. So you have one that calls out but you have one that runs ahead and and climbs a tree. Both of them disregard the pressures of the crowd, don't they? There's a sense that that the people are not a a, a concern. And that's a a really interesting thing for us to keep in mind as we go through this passage here, this idea of not allowing the people, the crowd, other individuals to come between us and God. Both have the same posture, ironically enough, towards wealth. It's interesting, the, the beggar, is poor, and yet what is, his, what is his request? It wasn't wealth and treasures and, and money and fortune. It was, it was sight. And the one who is poor, well, he's willing, I'm sorry, the one who is rich, he's willing to become poor, if that's what it takes to follow Jesus. Both are eager to welcome him. We're told the blind man immediately regained his sight and followed. In Zacchaeus, hurries down, and is happy to welcome. At the last stop here before Jerusalem, where literally everybody will go on to completely miss Jesus and turn away, Luke gives us two guys who get it. Two guys who see it. Two guys who understand. Two guys who, who have it together. And these two, though radically different in so many ways, demonstrate how all may receive Jesus in a saving way, which is what I want to focus in on here for the remainder of our time together. Now, it's no small deal that a guy like Zacchaeus is even eligible to be the recipient of Jesus' attention or blessing to begin with. All right? This is not your sort of garden variety IRS agent, you know, even here in our, in our country. And if there's anybody here who, <laughs> I don't think anyone here works for the IRS, uh, if you do, I hope you're not offended by the next few moments of the sermon, um, and, or if you have family that works for the IRS, I hope you don't take it personally, or I hope they don't take it personally. And if anyone's tuning in, um, I'm sure there are w- many wonderful people who work for the IRS, so don't mishear me. But in our society, the the IRS agent typically doesn't, you know, isn't someone that everyone's excited to to interact with, are they? Right? That they're not our favorite people. It's not our favorite agency, um, and and there's a spectrum here, and I'm in and, and just like. Everywhere, there's probably a range of, of sentiments towards uh, the IRS, even in our group here. But uh, some of you, maybe you just don't really care one way or the other, but there's some of you who wanna, that you want to see that whole department shut down, right? Um, but, but Zacchaeus, you know, he, he's more than that. He's more than just someone that you know, we're maybe neutral towards or, or works for an agency that we're not a fan of. The, the tax collector in the first century... Uh, of that time, in that place, to those people, was the worst of the worst. They were empowered by the occupying regime. You see the difference? This isn't, you know, a necessary evil of a sovereign nation. This is an an evil imposed upon the people by an invading, occupying nation. Try to connect your mind to that reality here today. If God forbid, things became such that we were occupied, and there was a, an evil, tyrannical regime that had occupied and and was uh, was over has overcome our society, and people from our church began working for them in in a in a, a traitorous fashion. I mean, that begins to paint a little bit of a picture of what the tax collector was to the first century Jew. They were empowered by the occupying regime and therefore free to extract whatever they wanted. There there was a license to take whatever they wanted just so long as Caesar got what was his. And the tax collector could build his empire off the backs of his fellow countrymen. Imagine how many lives were negatively impacted by just this one man whose entire identity whose entire livelihood was built on threats and bribes and extortion and shady deals. And then just imagine, as you think about this character, who wasn't, who wasn't just occasionally doing things that were wrong. It, was, it defined his life. Imagine the resentment and hatred and bitterness harbored by anyone who knew him. It doesn't take too much for us to imagine that, does it? <laughs> when we look at our own you know, political system, and, and how it is marked by such deep and rampant corruption that has left whole generations negatively impacted by it. Um, and because of that, it has bred you know, significant, deep sentiments of outrage and distrust among vast segments of our population. You and I, probably more so than any time in our nation's history, can connect with the sentiment towards the tax collector in this story. But taxation to the first century Jew was more than just a form of political oppression. It was a tangible representation of their religious oppression. It was a religious oppression. To to the first century Jew, the land and its fruit lay at the heart of God's promises to his people. Do do you see the, 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 the significance of that? The land and its fruit lay at the heart of God's promises to his people. And the tax collector got rich by getting in bed with the devil, the ones who weren't just political oppressors, but, in their eyes, spiritual oppressors. And as a result, the tax collector was its own category of sinner. You notice how that's how it's always phrased. You have sinners and tax collectors. They are their own category of sinner. So the question is, as we're reading through this gospel, and we come to this last encounter before Jerusalem, this last encounter before Jerusalem, where everyone misses Jesus at that, from that point on. Yes, the crowds are cheering him as he comes in, but they have no idea what they're cheering about. And yes, his disciples are with him there in the upper room, but just mere hours later, they all abandon him in the darkness. We come through this gospel and we come to this last encounter here before Jerusalem and we we have sort of like this, we put ourselves in the mind of a first century Jewish person and we're thinking about this in context and it begs the question, how could salvation ever come to the likes of such a traitorous, villainous weasel like Zacchaeus? And I want to answer that question in three simple points. So you note takers, here's point number one. Salvation begins with a central desire. A central desire. What was Zacchaeus's central desire? What did he want? He wanted to see Jesus. Now, in the Greek, you you see um, something there that does not show up here, at least in the NLT. I didn't didn't think to look at any of the other English translations um, here in... um, in, in verse 3. Um, but verse 3 in the NLT says he tried to get a look at Jesus, and so you get this idea that there's this crowd, and he's trying to see Jesus in that moment. But in the Greek, this idea of him wanting to see Jesus is in what's called the imperfect tense. And that carries with it this idea that, G, that Zacchaeus had wanted to see Jesus, not just in the moment as he's passing through, but there was a sort of long period of time which he had desired to see Jesus. He had heard about Jesus, maybe like the blind man last week, he, he had heard about the things Jesus had said and done, maybe he at some level was familiar with, with the promises of the Old Testament, maybe he was connecting dots in ways that no one else was connecting dots, but for whatever reason, Zacchaeus had desired to see Jesus for some time. And it's interesting because that exact same expression is uh, is found back, I believe in chapter 9 it is, yeah, chapter 9 verse 9 Um, regarding Herod so Herod too for a a period of time had wanted to see Jesus but what's the difference between them Well, well Herod well he was content to just stay secure in the confines and comforts of his palace whereas Zacchaeus took initiative Zacchaeus took risk he acted on that desire and in so doing, place him in, self in an entirely different category from the likes of Herod. Consider some of the barriers that prevented him and what they might point to. The first, of course, is in our text here. The most obvious one, the one that he's known for, uh, we, they made a whole song about this. Um, it's the fact that he's not very big. He's just a, as the song goes, a wee little man. I, I think wee is a word that we just should reincorporate into our common vernacular. It's just such a wonderful word. Um, that we just don't use anymore. So if you hear me start saying we more often, you know uh, what what lies behind that. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Verse three, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. It's it's an interesting uh, sort of turn of events, isn't it? Because as the chief tax collector, he would have spent his life looking down at the people, metaphorically. And yet, among the crowd, he can't even peer over them. It's interesting when Jesus is is brought into the equation, and it has this this uh, he has this effect of bringing the high low and bringing the low high, and you see it right here even just in in the, the matter of height and perspective and 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 view. And Zacchaeus had a natural element that prevented him from seeing Jesus, it was something that was beyond his power. He himself was born this way; he inherited the genes of his parents. Who knows which side it came from? Uh, we've got that going on in my family. We have a tall side of the family and we have a short side of the family, and we're still waiting to see wh- which side of the family the kids me- uh, resemble. You know, my, my daughter, she's barely five foot three and some change, and I don't know if she's going to grow another inch. We know which side of the family she got her height from, don't we? And then I've got a son who there's no end in sight to his growth. It's ridiculous, and you can think the Scribner side of the family for his genes. We don't know which side of the family Zacchaeus' genes came from. We just know that it was beyond his control. There's nothing he could do about his stature, his physical stature. And so it became a potential barrier between him and Jesus. What else was a potential barrier? How about the the very crowd that he can't see over? This is a theme we see time and time again throughout the Gospel of Luke. Someone who is, who, who is seeking and needs a genuine encounter with Jesus and they can't get to him because of people. Remember what we said a few weeks ago? They're the worst. People are the worst. I'm saying that tongue in cheek mostly. So you can giggle and then be like, well, I guess there's some truth to that. People are the worst. People are always in the way whether it's the, the woman with the hemorrhage or the blind man on the side of the road or right here with Zacchaeus, he can't get to Jesus because of other people. What about this? Do you think that at some level his own reputation might have created a potential barrier between him and Jesus? And, and I don't just mean his reputation as a tax collector. I just mean the, 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 the reputation that he would want for himself as just as a man. Yes, he's an important figure Pe- people uh, have to look up to him uh, in the hierarchy of of their society. They didn't look up to him you know, morally or or you know because of his character. He would he was lamentable. He would have been someone that people disdained and hated. And and probably because they had to look up to him as the person who could enforce Caesar's oppression over them. Um and so yeah, as as a As a lead figure in society, he had a a certain air, a certain reputation to uphold. But even as a Jewish man, he had certain things that were just taboo, that you just don't do. And one of them was, you don't run in public. Jewish men did not run in public. And you might be saying, why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because to run, you had to pull your tunic up. And no one wants to look at a grown man's legs. No one Just go to Great Wolf Lodge to the water park for a couple hours. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Where they don't just wear shorts down to their, you know, swim shorts down to the knees. Well, we're just not even going to go there. I I don't even want to talk about what you find in places like that. The way people (laughs) dress just blows my mind. But grown men did not run or climb trees in public. They didn't do it. It was shameful, it was undignified. But for Zacchaeus, seeing Jesus was the most important thing of all. He would let nothing prevent him from it. Not his natural circumstances, not the the pressures and and obstacles posed by other people, not even his own concern for his own pride and dignity, nothing was going to stand between him and a glimpse of Jesus. Some people, maybe some of you, allow their natural circumstances to come between them and God. Maybe they're unhappy with how they look. Maybe they're... um, They're unhappy with their abilities or their lack of abilities or maybe even a disability. Maybe they're unhappy about their situation in life. And as a result of these these sources of of, uh, unhappiness, they've allowed themselves, their hearts to become bitter and just generally bitter and generally resentful. And that gets projected upon God. Others are far too preoccupied with appearances and the opinions of other people. Yes, the idea of Jesus is nice. I like uh, you know, I like the Bible stories. I like the, the good things he offers me. It, it, it sounds lovely. It even pricks my heart a little bit. But even though the idea of Jesus is nice, well, not if it means lo- losing favor with society. Not if it means, you know, losing a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, uh, a, 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 you know, an acquaintance, uh, a job, you know, or or inviting, you know, ridicule or um, you know, persecution of some form or, or some, you know, falling outside of the in-group, the whatever it is, we let so much of those horizontal types of factors influence the, the vertical factor that is most important. But I think for many, what stands between them and, and Jesus is really a simple matter of pride. In fact, maybe that's ultimately what underlies every barrier to making Jesus the most important thing. That is, our own sense of what we deserve, or or what we value, or what we want people to think of us. Our own sense of control. That's the most important thing. Yes, Jesus may be important for you, but I have deemed that he's not important enough for me. And the starting point of a saving relationship with Jesus, and not, friends, not just the starting point, this isn't just a message for those who haven't ever come to Jesus before. It's a message for us all. It's not just the starting point of a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's every point along the way is that who He truly is and what He truly offers has to be and remain the central desire of the heart. Now imagine Zacchaeus's surprise. To discover the desire of Jesus' heart. Look again, if, if you would, with me um, there at verse 5. You know, the sycamore fig tree, I think it can grow as high as like 60 feet tall, which isn't the tallest tree ever, but it's, it's significant. It's not like a little, you know, one of these trees we have out here. These, um, what are they called? Um, help me out. Crape myrtle. myrtle, thank you. I know th- those even come in different varieties, but uh, I don't know if any of them grow quite that big, but if they do... Um, you get the idea of the the scale of the tree. It can become a massive tree. It has sort of long and many times lower uh, accessible uh, horizontal branches that that make it easy to climb, and it has big leaves. So it's a great place to go if you want to kind of scramble up and get a view of things and not be detected. And you can understand why Zacchaeus maybe might not want to be detected. You know, because in his, in his office as chief tax collector, everyone feared him, and everyone had to do what he said, and he had the power of Rome at his disposal. But in the masses, he's just a wee little guy that everyone hates. You heard wee again, didn't you? So the wee little man climbs the tree, he's disguised up there, he's hidden from there, he has the, the, the perspective, the vantage point that he wants, and imagine his surprise... That just when he has the best view of Jesus, Jesus stops and spots him up there and calls him by name. Imagine. Look in verse 5. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus, called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, come quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, it's not hard for us to understand why Zacchaeus would want to see Jesus, but who would have ever imagined that Jesus would want to see Zacchaeus? That Jesus would desire anything to do with a dirt bag like him? And frankly, that's, if we're being honest with ourselves, that's the shocking discovery for all who truly look to Jesus. That no matter who we are or what we've done or how much of a dirtbag we are, he's already looking at you. And he knows you by your name. And he wants you to quickly come and make room for him in your life. This isn't just some famous guy passing through town, this is the creator of the universe. He knows exactly who Zacchaeus is. He's he's the heart knower. He's God in the flesh, the the Holy One of Israel. And he hasn't come to banish Zacchaeus to judgment, but to invite him to salvation. Salvation that begins not just for him, but for all with a central desire that mirrors his. When our desire to be with him meets his pre-existing desire to be with us, salvation begins with a central desire. Number two, salvation requires a crucial decision. A crucial decision decision. You know, it's one thing to see Jesus. It's one thing to like the idea of Jesus. It's one thing to desire Jesus. It's one thing to even meet Jesus. But it is quite another thing altogether to obey him. It's quite another thing to obey him. I love how verse 6 depicts what happens here you know, Jesus says, come down at once. There's an urgency in the command of Jesus here. It's not like, hey, when you get the time, if you're done picking the figs, if you're done taking in the sights, you know, if you, if you can make room for me, you know, I would love, you know, maybe we can talk when, you, when, it's, when you're available. What does Jesus say? Now, now, come now. Zacchaeus, I'm passing through. There, there's an urgency here. There's a time component here. Come down quickly. And then Luke tells us in verse 6, Zacchaeus does just that. He quickly climbs down and took Jesus into his house in great excitement and joy. How immediate was his obedience? How how eager was his obedience? I think this is where many would-be disciples of Jesus stop short. You know, uh, a number of years ago, Around this time it was actually at one of our ministry fairs i can 't remember how many years back it was, but um, i 'll never forget. I was over on this wall here i don 't remember which table I was at, but I, I met a new couple I'd never seen them before that was their first Sunday. How about that? They came on ministry fair Sunday, and we struck, a, struck up a conversation, and there was like there was this really intense interest in this church. They wanted to know what does it mean that we 're evangelical. Methodist, what, what, how long has the church been here, and, uh, you know, how do we, how do we understand this issue or that issue, and what's this ministry for, and, and we just spent this, I mean, I, have never had someone show that much interest in the things of the church. We talked, and we talked, and we talked, and they were really delightful, a really delightful couple, and, and, and as we talked, and they learned more about who we were, I began to learn more about who they were, and they were very clear that they were not Christians, they hadn't come to faith. They, they were there just out of interest in, in being with other people and meeting people and, and the activities and the, the social aspects of things. I mean, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing that says you have to come in here only if you're a Christian. That's ridiculous. I mean, anyone's welcome to come in here, or wherever they are in their, their journey of faith or not faith. Absolutely, come. Come as you are. That's how Jesus welcomes people. And so we had a really great conversation. And, and they started coming to church every week. Every week, they were were more faithful than most of you. And they were interested, and they were involved, and they were part of activities, and they were making friends. And some of you know who I'm talking about, probably. And yet, despite their interest in the things of Jesus, and despite participating in the life of Jesus, and despite their regular exposure to the truth of Jesus And the claims of Jesus upon their lives, they never surrendered their hearts. And eventually, they quit coming. And I haven't seen them in, I feels like, several years now. You see, their, their curiosity never made it to confession. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who does, Jesus? Only those who do the will of my Father may enter. And that is something that you and I will all stand before a judgment seat one day and have to make an account for. Did I or did I not do the will of the Father? You will not be asked, did Jesus give you the warm fuzzies once once or twice in church? Did you really like the Bible stories in Sunday school? Were you a faithful attender to worship services? That's not what... Entrance into the kingdom of God is going to be based upon, friends. It is, did you do the will of the Father? It's not the hearers of the word who are blessed. But the doers of the word that are blessed. Zacchaeus could have settled for the warm fuzzies of learning about Jesus. And even hearing Jesus' desire. To, Jesus isn't there to criticize him. or to, Everyone else in the crowd... Everyone else there hated him, except Jesus. And man, I bet that warmed his heart. And he, I bet he was floating on cloud nine to know that this, this guy showed some level of care for him. He could have settled for that. He could have been, he could, his life could have been forever changed by the knowledge that Jesus maybe even cared him, about him this much. But if he would had just stayed in that tree and not obeyed the command to come and to welcome, well, he never would have experienced the fullness of what Jesus had to offer, would he? Jesus knows where he is. Jesus looks at him. Jesus calls him by name. and Jesus says, come down quickly. And I will tell you, Jesus knows where you are. And he knows you by name. And he's looking at you, and he calls out to you, And the time for decision is now. No more hesitation, no more calculation, no more second guessing, no more looking over your shoulder at what's behind. Today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. It begins with a central desire, and it requires a crucial decision to say yes to the lordship of Christ. Because of that, number three, salvation is costly. Salvation is costly. Verse eight, man, I don't know about you, but verse eight, I wrestle with that one. That's a tough one. Look at that again. Look at Zacchaeus standing there in his own house in front of the Lord and pledging restitution. Is that even a word that's a part of your vocabulary? Because I'll tell you, I don't see that word, and not just vocabulary, the concept, the practice of it, almost anywhere present in evangelicalism. This idea that there's some sort of burden laid upon me to make right my own wrongs. I mean, it's like we've taken this concept, we've, we've thrown it out altogether, and we've reduced you know, the gospel to you know, me being. A bad person, and, and continuously so, and God just forgives. I wonder how much it actually costs Zacchaeus here. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, yeah, he had great wealth, but look at what he's pledging. Lord, I'm giving, right now, I'm going to take everything I own, I'm going to cut it in half, I'm going to give it away. Now, someone with great wealth can, can swallow that type of sacrifice, but... I would dare say most of us couldn't. Unless you're a pastor and you don't really own anything. In which case, you're like, oh, take half of nothing. What's that? Half of nothing is still nothing. That's a joke. Light nut people. Come on. Come on. You can (laughs) chuckle at that. I own a thing or two. He's going to take what he owns. He's going to cut in half and give it away. But that's not all, is it? He says, and anyone that I have defrauded, anyone that I have taken more from than I should have, I will give back to them. Four times as much. I I, I have I've struggled to find anyone that can calculate what that might have been. It's it's impossible to know for sure, but listen, I, it sounds a lot to me like he bankrupted himself. I dare say he gave it all away. What does that say to you in this in this story here? About the cost of following Jesus. And listen, I'm not imposing something on the story out of my desire to make a point. This is the point of the teaching section from chapters 9 to 18. I mean, go back and read it for yourself. What is the cost of following Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Who are those who are his true disciples? And don't also mishear me as saying, in order to follow Jesus, you have to now go and give er, literally all of your stuff away. That's not what I'm saying either. What I'm saying is, the sincerity of repentance has implications on how we live life. And, and, and don't hear this story as saying that Zacchaeus' restitution is what saved him. That's not the teaching. It's saying that following Jesus required a radical change to everything he was and did. He knew that to follow Jesus meant he couldn't cling to his old way of life. This isn't a story of a bad person getting caught and being forced to pay everything back. This is a story of a bad person getting saved and having their life transformed. And too many Christians have a misguided view of grace. It's all about what we get I'm, I'm this terrible thing, God gives me something, it doesn't really change anything other than the penalty of the bad things I do. And so we just receive and we receive and receive, and yes, salvation is receiving, don't mishear me, but I don't think it's just that simple. Not if Jesus is going to be both Savior and Lord of your life. You see, Zacchaeus' obedience in coming down from the tree was just the beginning of salvation. It was not the end of salvation. And too often, evangelicals, even good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving evangelicals have reduced salvation to a singular moment, point in time. I came, I did the thing, I'm good to go. That's not salvation. That's not walking with God. That is a, a crucial moment. It's a crisis moment. It's a necessary moment. You absolutely, in in a point in time and space, need to come to a place where you say no to myself, I confess my sins, I repent of my sins, and I put my trust in Christ. But that's the beginning, not the end. It wasn't the only moment in time that mattered for Zacchaeus. It was the moment that set the pattern for all moments to come. That's the significance of the moment, is that it sets the pattern it's a microcosm of now all of life lived for him. Where every word he says, I will do. If he tells me to go here, I go there. I don't question it. I don't doubt it. It's immediate. It's complete. I do exactly what he says when he says it. Where before Zacchaeus' life had been marked by what his interests were, what made him wealthy, what provided him with comfort and security, and always at the expense of others, now following Jesus meant sacrificing his interests. It meant sacrificing his self provision, his claim upon his own life. It meant sacrificing his old patterns of relating to God and man. And this beautiful story is essentially the anti rich young ruler story. You remember that one from back in chapter 18? It was just a few pages, a few cha- paragraphs back. Luke wants us to keep all these together. To see them all together. There's contrast here that's instructive to your heart and to my heart. You have the, the rich young ruler who's done everything right. He could not be a more model citizen. But because there's the one thing, he could not be a follower of Jesus. And here you have someone whose whole life is, is wrong. But he has the one thing right. Isn't that interesting? The one thing right. He's the anti-rich young ruler. And so is the blind man. Both of them go above and beyond what even the Torah required. There's there's law that describes how to pay someone back, how to make restitution when you've done something wrong. And Zacchaeus, he's not just going by that. He's going above and beyond even that. And both he and the blind man demonstrate this idea of following Jesus means everything is his. He gets all of me, not just the bare minimum, not just what the law requires. He, he He is my law. His every word is my law, and even more than his word. Did Jesus tell the blind man to follow him? Find me where Jesus tells the blind man to follow him. He doesn't. Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man says, I want my sight. Jesus says, Your faith has healed you. What does the blind man do? He receives his sight. And then he followed. Did Jesus ask hospitality of Zacchaeus? Yes, but did he ask restitution? Did Jesus command Zacchaeus, I'm not stepping foot in your place until you make all these things right? No, no he didn't. Jesus asks nothing but hospitality, and Zacchaeus offers to give everything away. Not to win his approval, he already has his approval. Jesus is already in his home. It's not to secure his approval. It is in response to his approval. To show the sincerity of his desire to follow Jesus, and to put Jesus' interests, and Jesus' values, and Jesus' glory above all else. That's what makes him, friends, a true son of Abraham. Not a physical descendant by birth, but a spiritual descendant by faith. The only son of Abraham that ultimately matters. That same faith that moved Abraham to follow God at all costs could be found in Zacchaeus. And as a result, he experienced the fullness of the salvation Jesus came to offer. And so my question for you and for me is can that faith be found in you today? Do you recognize Jesus as the promised one of God? Do you hear his call and his claim upon your life? Do you have the faith that is willing to place all your trust, all your security, all your future, even all of your will beneath the Lordship of Christ? All throughout Luke, the crowds are seeking out Jesus. But here, on the threshold of Jerusalem, Jesus declares that he has come to seek out us. And here we thought this whole sermon series was about the crowds seeking out Jesus. You know what? The story is so much better than that. The Son of Man, he declares with virtually the last thing he says before stepping foot in the city that will kill him is that I have come to seek out you, the lost, the, the dirt bags of the world, the weasels, the scoundrels, the ones who have done everything wrong. Oh, you're the one that Jesus came for. You know, in that teaching section, there are some parables about some things that were lost. Jesus values the lost. He wants to come into your house to make his home in your heart, to offer you what only he can offer. And how do we receive such a gracious invitation? Well, it begins with a central desire. It requires a crucial decision. And though it's free, it will cost you your whole life your whole life and that's a tall order and it begs the question well if that's the case then who can ever really hope to be saved well jesus answered that too he said with man it's impossible but with god all things are possible amen Amen. let's pray lord i thank you that you came to seek and save even me even me. Despite all my failures and all my rebellion and all my self-interest and all my pride, all my fallen appetites and desires and ambitions. You came for me. And as uh, as life-changing as that knowledge and awareness is, it's not enough to just know it. Our desire has to mirror your desire your desire to come and, and make your home in my heart, my desire has to match that. And I have a choice to continue to live for myself and make things all about me, even at the expense of others, or to be willing to give anything away and everything away. My whole life, placed under your lordship and care today. To put my faith and my trust in you today, not just once, a long time ago, at some point in time, which mattered, but every moment, every moment of every day, to look to you in faith, to trust in you, to obey your word, to hear your commands. And yes, I won't do it perfectly, but you can make my heart perfect. You can make my heart right. My steps will always stumble. Because this treasure you have given us is is in an earthen vessel. It's fragile and frail and broken and beset by a thousand infirmities. But at its core, Jesus, your kingdom is the kingdom of the heart. And you came to touch and transform the heart. And you can make my heart whole. And I pray that you would do that right now in me and in all who look to you in faith, who don't look to their, their own efforts to save themselves, but look at your decisive action to save us all. And out of that, Lord, we will repent of sin, we'll turn from our wickedness, we'll make restitution, not to earn your favor, but because of your favor. We will belong to you. And do your will and your work in your world for your glory and yours alone. Lord, help us each to respond to the truth of your word, how you lead. May it be quick and immediate and complete. And we thank you for who you are and all that you've done. God, be glorified in the moments that remain, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.